Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Sunday, November 26, 2023. I'm Anthony Davis. Welcome to The Weekend Show, where we take a deep dive into the news of the week. You can support my work and independent journalism at patreon.com slash five minute news. Joining us today is a lawyer, activist, co-founder and co-executive director of Partners for Justice, which provides collaborative support services to people facing criminal charges. Emily Galvin Almanza, welcome back to The Weekend Show. Thank you so much for having me. I think this is your third time. Um, there, there is. is no prize, unfortunately, but <laughs> it does mean that you are given the opportunity to talk about the book that you are currently writing. Uh, just tell us about that very quickly. Yeah, I found that a lot of people are really curious about what's actually happening inside our criminal legal system. And the realities of that system are far more shocking and violent and dysfunctional than most lay people would want to believe. So I'm going to write all of that down so that anyone who wants to know about it can know about it. I'm going to try to combine that with some really evidence-based policy ideas and solutions for better public safety, better economic mobility, better public health. Um, So it should be a infuriating, shocking, revelatory, and hopefully done sometime in 2025. Great. Well, when it is, please come back and we'll we'll promote it and talk about it. I hope um, we'll be back before then. <laughs> I hope so too. So listen, we have lots to talk about today because I want to talk about um, voting rights and there's been some rule changes recently. And I think that it was confusing for me. I think it must be confusing for, for everybody. So we'll look at that in just a second. Also some changes to uh, abortion uh, law. Uh, so we'll we'll look at that, and uh, a little bit later we'll also talk about these interesting the interesting rise of these far right characters uh, around the world, and how maybe Donald Trump is the reason that they feel they have license to even apply as candidates. Um, but first, let's talk about the divided federal appeals court, which on Monday ruled that private individuals and groups such as the NAACP do not have the ability to sue under a key section of the Federal Voting Rights Act. It's a decision that contradicts decades of precedent. It could further erode protections under the landmark 1965 law. This is obviously very much in your wheelhouse. Tell tell us how this is going to affect organizations, groups, but also individuals going forward. Well, the huge problem here is the elimination of a private right of action. So what does a private right of action mean? Basically, it means that you or I or our neighbors or loved ones or whoever is experiencing the inability to vote, whether it's through intimidation or racially based gerrymandering, any of us could raise our hands and say, hey, this isn't fair. I'm not being able to vote in my democracy and bring suit in order to have our right protected. When you eliminate a private right of action, you're saying that ordinary people don't get a part to play in voting rights 
lawmaking and jurisprudence. You're essentially saying, oh, you know, I know you might have been the person who was actually harmed here, but let's wait for the government to do something on your behalf. So if you're somebody who believes in the right of the individual to have a say in their democracy, it's abhorrent and appalling. But even setting that aside, there's a lot of problems here with the sort of jurisprudence itself. I can law nerd out for a second on this. Basically, conservatives are constantly talking about originalism, right? We've all heard them wanting to dig into the original intent of a law or a statute and like, what did this word mean in like 1645? When we look at the Voting Rights Act, it's very clear that the intent of the law from the time of its inception was for ordinary people to have the ability to speak up and bring suit if their rights were being abrogated or limited. So here you've got a conservative court doing something that is clearly against the original intent of the law. I believe that was in the dissent uh, penned by a Bush appointee on the Eighth Circuit Court. But there's another piece of subtext here too. There's a layer, layers within layer. Um, the Republican Party doesn't have the political backing to actually light the Voting Rights Act on fire, which is what they would like to do. But the people of the United States don't actually want that. They would actually prefer to have a fair and more inclusive democracy. So by chipping away with like intellectually dishonest rulings of this kind, um, the Republican Party is slowly succeeding in doing something kind of undercover of darkness or really undercover of legalese uh, that it can't do politically outright. It was um, Clarence Thomas's former clerk, David Strass, was among three judges, uh, as you say, in the in the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeal. It was a 2-1 opinion ruled that only the US government can sue to enforce the Voting Rights Act provisions. If the Supreme Court upholds this, this could render voting, the, the Voting Rights Act completely meaningless. Yeah, so if you all remember uh, Shelby County, which was the last major news-breaking voting rights case we saw, the ruling in that case abrogated certain parts of the Voting Rights Act by saying, well, we don't need these pieces because we have a private right of action. And if ordinary people are actually being harmed, basically what it eliminated was the need for states which have a long history of doing shady things on voting rights. It eliminated the need for those states to check in with the federal government before they made new shady rules. And the reasoning was, well, we don't need to pre-check them because there's a private right of action. So if they do anything super shady, ordinary people will raise their voices and we'll find out about it and there will be a suit. If you then take away the private right of action, you've essentially created this circle in which there is no way for people who are being harmed to speak up unless the government like notices and does something about it. That might work under a government that is friendly to the idea of democracy. But if you have a government that is unfriendly to the idea of democracy, like we stand a decent chance of having, after next November, that government can simply shut off voting rights protections like a light switch by having the Department of Justice not bring these kinds of cases. So yeah, essentially, this is a sneaky path to meaninglessness. And people don't recognize how important their rights are until they lose them, do they? And, and, and this is part of the problem, isn't it? That there's a distraction and we're being distracted all the time at the moment, and and we'll talk about abortion in a little while. But behind the scenes, there are organisations that are actually going out of their way to reduce that kind of you know that that those those democratic norms in the US. And yeah. you've said the word shady several times. I mean, it kind of is, right? I mean, this mm -hmm. this genuinely. I mean, in its simplest form, 
Republicans don't want people to vote because they'll never win ever again. That's what all of this boils down to. Democrats want everybody to vote, not just because they're more likely to win, because they want everybody to vote. Right. I mean, that's it's as simple as that, isn't it? Yeah, I don't. I would push back a little bit against the idea that we only notice our rights once they're gone, because I think that there are huge swaths of Americans who are quite experienced with having their rights abrogated. So, for example, um, in most states, having a felony conviction takes away a person's right to vote for some period of time. Yeah. Because our criminal legal system targets particularly black men, black men are extremely likely in this country to have had their right to vote taken away, their political voice silenced. So for the black community or communities who are being, again, primarily targeted by racially based gerrymandering, they've been aware of this problem the whole time. The problem is when you use racially based gerrymandering and yes, sneaky, shady tactics to strip whole communities, whole demographics of their right to vote and their right to be heard, you're perpetuating a cycle wherein those folks are never going to be able to have the political representation to then undo the laws that silence them. So I think that for a lot of Americans who have been privileged enough to not have this happen to them, yeah, these, these cases should be a four alarm fire. But for a lot of people, this is just more of the same. It's more of the same that the Voting Rights Act at its point of origin was designed to address. In this country, we have a total history of trying to marginalize and silence particularly black voters. It reminds me, as you describe it, of those terrible video images we saw, police body camera video in Florida of the, you know, Ron DeSantis's task force going over to people who were just hanging out outside in their front yards and being arrested for voting because they'd previously had a, a, a criminal conviction. They'd been released. They'd been told they could vote, but he changed the rules because, of course, he was trying to control the vote and get more for himself. And even the police were like, I'm sorry that I have to do this, but I have to do this. That's that's an example of this in many it, ways, it, isn't it? And that's a really deliberate tactic, too, because most of the, I mean, genuine voter fraud in this country is extremely rare. Yeah. Um, as someone who's been a public defender for a long time and who has represented thousands of people, I have never had a voting fraud case. It's just really rare as a crime. But most of the time when you see it, unfortunately, if you just look at the data, much of the time it is happening amongst conservative voters. There was a lot of like double ballots for Trump kind of stuff going on. And so I think that when you look at the Florida situation, Ron DeSantis is a very strategic politician. And in a world where the talking point of, hey, you know, there's not much voter fraud and when it's there, it's usually on your side, bro. That talking point is damaging to him. So by creating a situation where black disenfranchised voters in Florida were re-enfranchised by the voters of Florida and then had that right taken back away by the legislature on a criminalization of poverty basis, by the way, they said, oh, you haven't paid off your fines and fees. So you still have no political voice. Creating that really confusing circumstance and then directing district attorneys and police departments to act on that confusion is a way to manufacture instances of non-conservative voting fraud. So much of the conversation that I find us having 
with you and with other guests goes back to to racism that is baked into the American way. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago that black people were owned and sold and bought in this country. And there does seem to be, you know, obviously the civil rights movement made huge leaps. But I, I'm starting to think that I, actually maybe it really didn't go far enough because now we're starting to see these you know, the rise of the far right, as we'll talk about a little bit later. The, in the process of that rising, I feel like civil rights is being undone. Yes, absolutely. Um, authoritarian regimes generally seek uniformity of a populace. In a country like this, though, there's so much, as you call it, baked in racism and division and bias and prejudice. And one of the thorniest things is that it's not individual. Yes, there are people who are individually racist, but the very structures of our country's, you know, legal apparatus is built in a way that targets black and brown people and poor people much more than anybody else. To give you one example, of all of the people who are arrested and prosecuted in America, 80% of them are so poor that they get a public defender. Now, I don't actually think from my experience living in the world that 80% of crime is only happening among poor people. It's just the crime that we choose to prosecute and where we choose to allocate police resources and the quotas they hold and the targets they are given and the way they are trained specifically targets communities of color. And of course, this emerges directly from the legacy of slave patrols in the South and anti-union, anti-immigrant activity in the Northeast. So essentially the way we've evolved as a nation has built racism into the very fabric of our country. And sometimes it's not even noticeable. There's been a push recently in my field to bring in algorithms to determine whether a person should be released or not when they are charged with a crime. But a lot of the data that goes into those algorithms is things like age at first arrest. Well, if you're growing up as a young black man in South Central Los Angeles, your age at first arrest may be much younger than if you grew up as a white woman in Iowa City, Iowa, where I simply had less police conduct. Does that mean I was acting better as a kid? It does not. It means that when you flood neighborhoods with police and tell them to target and talk to black children, you're going to create younger age at first arrest. And then that data point, which is already racially biased, goes into an algorithm that spits out supposedly neutral data that has the racism baked in. So it's not even the visible racism in this country. It's also the invisible. Republicans think that you're only racist if you shout the N-word at someone across the office. I mean, that's, that's where the bar has been set for a, a, lot of, a lot of people on the right. And what you just described, the kind of cultural racism and, and systemic racism and all of these kind of elements of it that, you know, regular white people would not even consider because they haven't struggled trying to get served in a bar, for example, basic things where people feel racism. And, and so how do you, or how does one address this issue with, with people on the right who are in denial about race as an issue when, you know, an increasing percentage of the population is black and brown. And hopefully as we go on, we'll have more integrated romances and eventually we'll, we'll all be maybe kind of similar. 
I mean, this is this is the the issue, isn't it? That there is a denial of, that racism exists, and yet it is so blatant. Even with the police shooting people, executing people on the street without a trial. Yeah, it's challenging. I think one thing I would say that gives me a lot of hope. Um, I grew up in a couple different communities. And one of the communities I grew up in was fairly conservative, right on the Wyoming, Colorado border, cowboy country, cowboy culture. I'm a proud rodeo kid. And I've had really fruitful conversations with friends from that place and that community and that culture. And the reason those conversations have been fruitful is two things. One, there's incredible evidence about the impact of racial bias, even when people are not intending for that impact to take place, these sort of inadvertent baked in structural racism of this country, there's evidence. And the evidence is not, I don't think, challenging to understand or listen to, but you need the second element, which is a relationship of trust. I think one of the things I'm most proud of is that because I do hold relationships of trust with people who disagree with me on a lot of issues, we can have conversations where I'm able to neutrally present the evidence about what's really happening in my little sector of expertise. And I can get an honest ear because of that relationship. I think um, it's more and more challenging, though, to bring people who hold the information into trust-based conversations with people who disagree with them. I have a lot of like white girl safety <laughs> going into conversations like this. I can, I can walk into rooms with people who might really look askance at, at other members of my family. Um, but I can open that trust door to have these conversations when others can't. And so I think it's incumbent upon me as a person of privilege to enter into those conversations and have them. It's one of the reasons I'm working on, on the writing that I'm working on. Um, but I don't think it's possible or fair to ask communities of color to once again shoulder the burden of entering into spaces with people who hate them and trying to educate those people. So I think really one of the solutions is building a lot more trust and stronger public education from people who can crack open the door with a modicum of trust. It gets confusing for some people sometimes when black police officers beat up or shoot black individuals. They don't quite understand how that works. And then I also wanted to mention Vivek Ramaswamy, who currently is a, <laughs> I can see you're a fan, uh, who currently is a, a candidate for the Republican primary. I just want to read a, a tweet that he posted a couple of days ago. He just wrote the word truth. One, God is real. Two, there are two genders. Three, human flourishing requires fossil fuels. Four, reverse racism is racism. Five, an open border is no border. And it goes on, like parents determining the education of their children and the nuclear family is the greatest form of governance known to man. I mean... That's like Jenny Holzer, but in reverse. Yeah. That's terrifying, yeah. But this is, this is why I wanted it, to read it to you. And the fact that he wrote truth at the top, before these points of order, I was just like, man, this is a man with brown skin who should know better. I mean, you know, this is what is confusing some people is that the, you know, the, the tradition, the traditional prejudice is being, is being called into question by people who don't necessarily understand the bigger picture. 
I, I think there's some stereotyping in that too. I mean, there's no such thing as a monolithic group of people. So for one thing, the point I just made about wanting to leverage my privilege to have hard conversations on racial bias, that doesn't mean that there's a right answer about who should be having those conversations. Yeah. I mean, I would also simultaneously argue that the people most important in those conversations are the people who've actually experienced racial bias and that the yeah. people closest to the problem, as Glenn Martin says, are also closest to the solution, but farthest from resources. But that doesn't mean that every person who holds identities that make them proximate to a problem carries the same views on that problem. I think what you, you started at this question with police, when police of color carry out acts of violence on other people of color. Yeah. And I think what that really drives home for me is the degree to which the system of policing itself, again, the racism is not individual. It is structural. If you are a black police officer in a police force where you are being told every day your life is in danger, your only job is to make it home safe at night. These people on the street are animals. They want to get you. If just Whoever you are, if you are in that uniform and in that job, you're walking out onto the street terrified. And you might be terrified of people who share identities with you. But the structural racism, the sort of white supremacy of the way police are educated, trained, incentivized, who gets marginalized in the force and who gets promoted. I mean, there's the possibility of building in the values of white supremacy into a system of training, yeah. so much so that people just carry them out without taking a personal view that would suggest racial animus. I think, I mean, look, it's you don't ask me to psychoanalyze Vivek Ramaswamy, but, <laughs> but I think that the Republican Party is a party that is advancing positions which necessarily depend on not listening to certain sectors of people. So for example, on climate change, I love the old joke about climate change, right? Which is like a worst case scenario. What's our worst case scenario if we take action on climate change? The worst case scenario is that we've built a better world. Mm. Um, I think really the problem here is that the people incentivized to continue fossil fuel production are people of great privilege and wealth. And the people who stand to be harmed the most by its production are people living in poverty and often living in, you know, non-Western countries in the global South, people living in regions that the Republican Party would really prefer not to hear from. I think there was a particular word that our former president used pertaining to those countries. So um, on all of these issues, Vivek Ramaswamy is echoing the position of white men in power. Yeah, well, that, that's why that I read the list, because it's each point it has has racist connotations. Mm -hmm. and, and, and really, you know, this is why, because you said about having difficult conversations about racism. And, and, you know, I want this to be a difficult conversation about racism, because I, I recognize mm -hmm. that, which is why I'm trying to play devil's advocate a little bit, because I recognize that whilst we are, you know, some of us have the time to intellectualize the difference mm -hmm. between that brown person and that brown person there are so many people in america who are who are not they 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 take everything at face value and and the republicans are playing on that because when he talks about mm -hmm. about an open border is no border that is a race conversation yes. again that is about racism it's not about there's plenty of landmass in america to have everybody come here you know there's the there's plenty of room we can build cities if necessary the point is that you know, his racism 
is so clear. And we have the same problem going on in the UK at the moment. You know, they're talking about deporting people to Rwanda. I mean, it's like, where did Rwanda come from? Makes no sense. It is is fear-mongering, scaring people, and also confusing the message. You know, and and I think that this is kind of where we're at here at, at the moment. There's all of this noise about about race and immigration, and there are two genders, and you know, Christian nationalism, and all of this stuff, and yet so much of it just comes back to racism. You no, know, it occurs to me that if they're going to tokenize identity and try to make identity a vehicle for really um, regressive policy. I look forward to them trying to find a trans person to say there are only two genders. I mean, isn't that really what they need if they really want to tokenize identity? Right. It's, we need to take a pause for our sponsor, but I want to come back and flesh this out with you because I think we're onto something, Emily. (laughs) I think we're onto something. Okay. Back on the weekend show with Emily Galvin Almanza next. Did you know that poor sleep can cause weight gain, mood issues, poor mental health and lower productivity? Sleep is the foundation of our mental and physical health and performance in our days. Having a consistent nighttime routine is non-negotiable. When I don't get enough sleep, trust me, you don't want to be around me the next day. Introducing Beam Dream. You know, we've been raving about Beam Dream's powder, their healthy hot cocoa for sleep. Well, today you can get a special discount on Beam's Dream Powder, their best-selling healthy hot cocoa for sleep with no added sugar. Now available in delicious flavors like sea salt caramel, cinnamon cocoa, and chocolate peanut butter. Better sleep has never tasted better. Dream contains a powerful all-natural blend of reishi, magnesium, L-theanine, melatonin, and nano-CBD to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. A clinical study recently revealed that Dream helped 93% of users wake up feeling more refreshed, and 93% reported that Dream helped them get a more restful night's sleep. Just mix Beam Dream into hot water or milk, stir or froth, and enjoy before bedtime. When I tried it, I definitely slept better and felt better the next morning too. Find out why Forbes and New York Times are all talking about Beam and why it's trusted by the world's top athletes and business professionals. If you want to try Beam's best-selling dream powder, take advantage of their biggest sale of the year and get up to 50% off for a limited time when you go to shopbeam.com weekend. The discount is auto-applied at checkout. No code is necessary. That's shopbeam.com weekend for up to 50% off. The perfect present doesn't always have to be difficult to find. A digital picture frame from Aura Frames is thoughtful, meaningful, and perfect for pretty much everyone. They even come in a premium gift box, so shove that wrapping paper back in the closet. I find it hard to find gifts for my mum every year, but this is perfect because you'll get to see multiple pictures of me and the family. Pick up one of their frames, easily set it up in minutes, and start sharing your favorite photos and videos using the free Aura app. It comes with unlimited storage, and it's super secure, which is good to know. Give the best gift ever this year. From now through Black Friday and Cyber Monday, visit AuraFrames.com and get $40 off their best-selling Carver matte frame with the code WEEKEND. This is their best deal of the year, so get yours now. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com with the promo code WEEKEND. Terms and conditions apply. 
It's The Weekend Show. I'm Anthony Davis, and uh, Emily Galvin Almanza joins us from Partners for Justice. We, we, I feel that, you know, the race conversation in the U.S. is had on so many different levels, but often people don't join the dots and don't make those connections, as we said earlier about immigration being a kind of racist issue, amongst other things. And, and obviously, police brutality is, you know, plays a huge part in this. And undoubtedly, when, when Donald Trump was president, in my view, the police felt that they had more license and I, I talk about Derek Chauvin as an example. You know, I felt that he felt he could get away with with executing George Floyd while being filmed because Donald Trump was the president at the time. And he was like, well, you know, I've, I've, I have protection here because that kind of, you know, white supremacist thinking flowed right through from, you know, the, the ground troops up to the guy at the very top. How much truth in that is there, do you think? I'm hesitant. Look, I believe that authoritarian regimes of all kinds and, and far right regimes and regimes that depend on the marginalization and dehumanization of certain people absolutely create an echo effect where ordinary people are more prone to engage in this now legitimized dehumanization of others. I completely agree with that. But in the case of police violence, I don't want to sidestep the longevity of the problem, which has existed under every kind of administration. And honestly, if we're being real, on which Democrats have not been heroes. Yeah. Um, I think that the dehumanization that enables a person to behave, to behave like Derek Chauvin, you have to think the person that you are attacking is not a person. You might see them as an offender, a felon, a perp, um, an ex-con. Um, a subject, a target. There's a million words in the system. And what those words are designed to do is make the person who's doing the violence not feel feelings about the violence they are doing. And that's not Donald Trump's fault. Certainly things get a lot worse when you've got the president cheering on violent acts against marginalized people. But at the same time, those actions have been happening and have continued to happen. And one of the things that's been most disheartening to me is as we get farther from 2020, we see a slight lessening of interest in the racial justice and police violence crisis in America. We see, I mean, even in my sector, from time to time, I see philanthropic entities moving towards other issues, other topics. And I sort of think to myself, did you check the box on racial justice? Like, are we now so far from the murder of George Floyd that we can say we got it done? We we've made a lot of progress. Really cool things have been done in the last few years. We've made incredible leaps and bounds but we are so far from living in an equitable nation where black people are safe. And so to me, I don't want to put this in the hands of Donald Trump because that would mean that when he went away, it was all better and it's not all better. And it's not going to be all better without a lot more effort. One of their arguments from the Republican camp is that, you know, they, they almost want to ban racism, right? That's their theory, right? They say, yeah. Oh, well, you know, everyone is equal. We, there's, there is no racism. Everyone is equal. And that's kind of their, their get out of jail card. We're not yeah, buying they love to say, I don't care if you're blue, green or purple. I'm like, where are these purple people that you are, that you are worried about? Yeah. Um, no, I think that the, dis we, we talked about this actually in a prior, in a prior conversation and I'm going to come back to it again because the ability to take power away from ordinary people 
depends on convincing those people that you're not taking anything away from them. It's a lot easier to convince people that you are not doing anything wrong if they lack the education to spot the wrong things you are doing. So if you take away the ability of people to talk about race, to teach about race, and this applies also to gender, to identity, to the LGBTQ community, like all, all of the things that Republicans are trying to ban education about are things where they would like to take people's rights away. And so the effort here really is to strip the voting public of their ability to discern their own abuse. And this goes back to this point with the, the adjustments to, the, to, to voting rights, is that it is done in a way, in a very subtle way. Do you know, I often say that if all of these laws that took away our freedoms were announced on one day, as opposed to over a period of years, people would be protesting up in arms on all sides, going nuts. But, but the erosion of rights over decades is done so subtly and, you know, and even the media is not able to keep up sometimes because as you've talked about, you know, there is the, the gerrymandering that's going on, the, the redrawing of boundary lines and districts to, 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 you know, reduce the, the black vote. I mean, this stuff is clandestine and yet at the ballot box, it's the only way Republicans increasingly, it's the only way they're going to be able to win. Yeah, they so can't win normal stop elections. <laughs> they, they can't win normal elections. And, and this is the only way that they can really solidify power at this point is through, you remember the weird machinations of the last election, the fake electors, the whole, there's a whole coup plot. I mean, it's astonishing to me that Democrats don't seem sufficiently aware or alarmed by the fact that the Republican Party has accepted that they're not going to win normal elections and yeah. is really, really strategic about setting up modalities to avoid normal elections. But you're absolutely right also is that the, the scale of loss that we have sustained as a people, um, if it were done all in one day, we would be up in arms and we're America, so we've got arms to get up in. Yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe not a good thing, <laughs> but... I think that it's this boiling frog thing and also the, the very strategic burying of things in, in boring cloaks, right? So like this voting rights ruling, there's a, at the time the Voting Rights Act was written, it was very easy to put in a private right of action that ordinary people could bring suit on this thing. Since that, since that legislation, there have evolved a series of cases where more and more you have to kind of like put some magic words and do a special dance in your law to get a private right of action, which, by the way, is one of the singular stupid things about the law. We have a lot of magic words in the law. And then we get dumb rules where if you didn't say the magic words, you don't get the right you're supposed to have. Uh, we see this in policing. Actually, there was a case where a kid said to the police officer who was interrogating him, I want a lawyer, dog. And the court interpreted that as him asking for a canine legal practitioner and did not count that as him invoking his right to counsel. So again, magic words, generally bad. But this court is using that magic word structure to say, well, the magic words and the special dance aren't in the original Voting Rights Act, which was written before the magic words and the special dance were required. And therefore this thing doesn't exist. And by the way, calling it a private right of action it's another thing lawyers do to hide from ordinary people what's really being taken from them, boiling frogs. 
If we call it a private right of action, you, the boiling frog, are sort of like, well, we've lost the private right of action in the Voting Rights Act. I'm changing the channel because I don't know what that means. If somebody says, hey, you just lost your right to sue if somebody takes your vote away because of your race, and now you've got to wait on the government to do it for you, I bet there are conservatives who wouldn't like that either. Boiling frogs depend on a lot of obfuscation. Things are fine whilst you don't have a racist government or a racist governor or a racist mayor, right? Or racist leadership. Yeah. You know, you, 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 and this is why I think it's so frustrating to me and people I talk to about, you know, the criticism of Joe Biden being too old. And it's like, you do understand that he's not racist and that is kind of important. You do understand that he cares for people other than himself. And that is kind of important that he's not a fascist, that he, and he recognizes the threat, which is part of the reason why he came out of retirement to take this job in the first place. You know, you, you, and, and, and also, and people don't mention that his age doesn't affect his policymaking decisions. You know, it yeah. might affect his gait. It might affect his speech, but it doesn't affect his ability to be the president. And, and, you know, I've asked guests recently, you know, is this forthcoming election that is a year away now, is it more important than the last one? And a lot of people are saying, yeah, I mean, thing now that we know what we could look forward to under a Trump presidency, the retribution and the hate and all of the, all of the kind of added value that he's offering, uh, you know, now, now is the time to kind of ring the alarm bells as loudly as you can. Yeah, I think I have a lot of fear about this next election because I I understand when I hear from progressives, especially young people, about the ways in which they believed in some promises that were made at the time of the last election and they haven't seen those promises come to fruition. They don't care about the why. They don't care about the nitty gritty. They're upset. Yeah. And the reason this frightens me is, for one, a lot of these things are messaging problems. Like I, I wish that our presidential team would help clarify a lot of their achievements and a lot of the ways in which the things they haven't achieved have been beyond their control. Like I feel like we need messaging, we need crisis comms as if he was really unpopular because with certain groups, he is really unpopular and he yeah. needs to message in a way that begins to address that. And increasingly with young people because of the war in the Middle East and they feel that his allegiance to Israel is, is problematic for him. And yeah, I mean, I, I remember I saw some messaging where, you know, I was thrilled to read news of a potential ceasefire. And then there was already critique like, well, sure, you negotiated the ceasefire, but you also were complicit in creating this conflict in the first place. And yeah. I, I hear that. I, get, I think here's where, where I stand. I wish more people thought about the presidency as a team and not as an individual. And here's why. It's on both sides, actually. On the conservative side, a lot of the, believe it or not, a lot of the worst things that Donald Trump could have done as president were stymied by people around him who did not carry out those things. People who, who might disagree with me on everything, but did us all a great service by choosing to slow roll something or not follow an order in order to protect the American people and to protect our democracy. John Kelly, Mark Milley, plenty of them. I think that Donald Trump has learned a lot 
about the way in which the presidency actually operates as a team. And the president by himself can't do a lot of things without cooperation from other actors. And I think that understanding makes him much, much, much more dangerous a second time around because he knows which positions he needs loyalists in. And we've seen that he can he can very easily be surrounded by loyalists. There's there's a lot of plea bargains happening right now by people around him who did some things they would not ordinarily perhaps have done because they were in his ambit. So I think that lesson makes him an infinitely greater risk a second time around. On the other side, I think there are people who do have questions about Joe Biden himself, the person, the man. And I wish that they would also understand that the team that can be in place around a president that can get things done is what we need to lean on and call for. And I think there's probably a lot of people who I who I love, who play on my team, who 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 maybe would not agree with me on this. But here's what I say is like, I would probably, you know, that dog of Joe Biden's that like keeps biting people. Yeah. I would vote for that dog. Yeah. over a second Trump presidency, because there is not an equivalency. You've got one side who is part of an effort to subvert democratic power and electoral integrity, and also has talked about like targeting his enemies and like putting people in confinement. And then on the other side, you got a guy who's like policy choices we don't always agree with. And that's a normal problem. I would like to stay in the world of normal problems and not historical problems. Yeah, well, it, political discourse is normal, and and a right. functioning democracy has a has a left and a right, or multiple parties that are able to you know hold the government to account. We should also say that Joe Biden's cabinet is the youngest and most diverse in history, and they're doing it a little bit. You know, there's this new Biden Harris HQ Twitter account, which is you know is is doing you know it's writing the wrongs. They had some nice Thanksgiving tweets about how you deal with your MAGA Republican neighbors. Yeah, and then they were like, happy Thanksgiving, thanks to the cops. And I was right. like, oh, yeah. God, why? Why? Yeah, no. Yeah. But, but I agree with you, they can go more. And do you think that we should be highlighting the, these individuals, these young, diverse people, as well as the vice president, of course, who, who you know, is so divisive? With, with certain voting groups, but actually I think is a, is, a, is a real star. I'd love to hear more from a lot of people. And it's, I think one of the biggest challenges right now is that it is a media, it has been for the better part of a decade now, a media environment in which it is really hard to get anything through. Because at the same time as you might have, you know, Biden's young, brilliant secretary of something talking about this amazing achievement that they've just made through their agency, you've got like, a, you know, school shooting and a terrorist activity and a climate crisis and a war and or another war. And, you know, like, I think that... Um, the need, when I say strategic comms, I mean traditional comms aren't necessarily going to cut it right now. And yeah. yes, platforming people who are really exciting, who are the leaders of tomorrow, who are achieving things behind the scenes in real ways. There's a lot of traditional politics that involves like doing amazing things behind the scenes and then never telling anyone about it. Um, I would like to hear about it. And I think we need smarter people finding ways to force that information through, even in the challenging media environment. I would agree. I mean, you know, some people are talking about switching Joe Biden out for Gavin Newsom at the 11th hour and stuff like that. I mean, 
it's very dangerous, isn't it? The, the, because the threat is so great, the, the, the threat of fascism is so great that strategically they need to be bringing in like the best marketeers on the planet at this moment in time. You know, I think we'd all be happy to chip in to pay for them. Would you call, do you call it a complacency? You know, or, or is it the fact that, and I suppose this is the, this is the alternative view is that actually Donald Trump and his surrogates make so much noise, but actually they haven't won anything for years, not since 2016. And so, you know, sometimes I, I personally think that people are becoming wise to good and evil and are becoming wise to the, the rise of authoritarianism. And actually, and abortion, which I want to talk about next, is obviously the key, really the key issue. And and maybe we are just so distracted by the media and terrible polls, but actually Americans are smarter than to vote for Donald Trump a second time. I hope so. I mean, look, I I think that one one point that's been made to me, which I think is a real point, is that by having a primary... Republicans get to take a lot of airtime and we have to hear from all of them at yeah. their debates. And we have to wonder about what Ron DeSantis's shoes are really made of. And like, <laughs> they are, they're all over the internet. They're, they're dominating yeah. the media because they're having a primary. Yeah. And um, I am not a smart, like my area of expertise is not political strategy. Um, I would leave it to someone who does specialize in that to tell us what the best way is to get, Democrats more excited about the ideally big tent that our pot, our party contains and the fresh voices and the leaders of tomorrow excited enough to show up um, the way we show up for direct issues we care about. And that actually, I think what we've seen in recent months is that voters will really, really turn out when they have a direct opportunity to speak on an issue they care about. When they see a candidate as being a proxy for that direct issue that they care about, they will turn out for that candidate. But in order to see a candidate as carrying an issue forward, they need to have trust in that person to get the job done. And the reason, by the way, that that investment in an issue, whether it's abortion or marijuana or bodily autonomy of any kind, by getting them to the voting booth, we then get them voting on the Senate races, the congressional races, the DA races, the judges races. There's a whole slew of down ballot races that have at times a much more immediate impact on people's daily lives. But if they decide that the presidential isn't exciting to them and they don't go to the booth in the first place, we're losing them on all those other races as well. Um, we just had special elections and you know, halfway elections. Pennsylvania, Ohio, Kentucky, Virginia, they, they sent a, a resounding message to anti-choice politicians and judges. We will keep abortion legal in our states. And, and they made it clear to the Republican Party that abortion wins elections and that the right's war on reproductive freedom is backfiring. Should, therefore, the Democrats be drawing more attention to this? And, yes. And you know, talking about it more because, yeah. you know, there, there isn't a woman who isn't thinking about this all the time. Yeah, I think drawing more attention to it and also indicating a more nuanced understanding of what this means. 
because as as a person with a uterus, I do not feel like my right to end a pregnancy is being abrogated. I also feel like my right to health care is being abrogated, to preventative care, to um, um, if you know if symptoms of other diseases that are treated by the same medications that are also used in abortions. And I'm not saying that that is more important. I'm just saying that the scale of what is being done is bigger even than abortion. Like, yes, we need to talk about abortion and we need to talk about abortion in all of its contexts and all of its permutations and the way in which it can actually serve to save lives, to save the course of a life, to preserve a future. Um, we also need to talk about the way in which as a nation that funnels all of our likes and dislikes through the criminal legal system, that criminalization of women's health care results in, again, incredibly damaging policing of women's bodies and the bodies of anyone. I mean, really, trans, I want to include trans bodies in this conversation because they are also having their health care access yeah. restricted. Yeah. So Despite not, what Vivek yeah. Ramaswamy says in his tweet that there are only two genders. And, and, Which isn't you know. even biologically true, by the way. <laughs> right. Like, open a high school biology textbook, man. Right. I know. Because the next thing that I feel Republicans are coming for is, is medical abortion, the, you know, what we call in England the morning after pill, mm -hmm. um, amongst other you know, types of, of um, kind of oral uh, abortion. And this is something that is, you know, in, in, in wide use. You can buy these pills on Amazon, you know, and yet mm -hmm. this is something that the Republicans have next on their on their bucket list. Yes, I mean, it's not. So you asked earlier about the trickle down authoritarianism, right? The way in which leadership emboldens ordinary people to behave differently towards one another. And I think this trend towards controlling and dehumanizing people who carry pregnancies is already having terrifying effects. There was a case in Ohio of a young woman who was experiencing a stillbirth, which is, of course, a devastating loss. This is the loss of her child. And she went to the hospital and they sent her home. And she went to the hospital again and they sent her home again no medication, no care. And at home, she delivered her stillbirth by herself in her bathroom. She is now being prosecuted for abuse of a corpse because the fetus was in the toilet bowl in her apartment. Now, that's not something that happened because of one bad actor. That took someone calling the cops on her. That took cops responding and deciding to make an arrest. That took a DA deciding to write up a criminal complaint against her and choosing to move forward with an indictment of her. That chose, that took a judge who allowed this proceeding to continue, a grieving mother who was turned away for care, experienced a stillbirth, and now is at risk of incarceration for how she handled the aftermath of the loss of her child. So, Yes, they're coming for medical. Yes, they're coming for contraception because what they would really like, I think, is a world in which there are more mechanisms to control people. And this is a mechanism to control people that applies to half the population. 
So I don't think it's, I mean, yeah, there's probably a lot of like hatred of (laughs) women built into it. But at at the end of the day, this is the same thing as the voting rights thing, right? This is a way to take away people's liberties and to use the power of the state and to legitimize using the power of the state against those people. So it's it's another form of authoritarianism. Yes, it's it's, it's control, and as you say, you know, there's so uh, the, the the rise of Christian nationalism in the U.S. is presenting some very interesting conversations. You know, when we see the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, who says, you know, if anybody wants to know what my views are, they can pick up a Bible off of their shelf and just read it. And I thought to myself, well, I don't actually have a Bible on my shelf. He's he's already judging and presuming that I do. But, you know, this is very worrying because interpretation really is the word here. And his interpretation of the Bible and other people's interpretation of voting rights and interpretation of, of a woman's right to abortion access. And then, of course, the abortion of the, the uh, not abortion, sorry, the interpretation of abortion in different states. So... You don't know what kind of care you're entitled to because the law is changing all the time. And if you go to a hospital, you don't know what you're going to get. And and the tragic stories, as the one you just told, are happening every day, all the time in these Republican states that have banned abortion because doctors don't want to get sued or struck off. It's this is like third world stuff in a place that Americans like to call the greatest country in the world. It is. And it's the boiling frog theory as well. I mean, we are a country that has had some really weird, restrictive, puritanical laws. And unlike the rest of the world, venerates those aspects of our history rather than moving past them. I I think something that a lot of Americans fail to realize is that like when you compare us to Europe, I think a lot of people think that we're like peers with Europe. And Oh, no. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I have experience. In that. Yes. So yeah. we would be considered extraordinarily conservative yeah. in a European framework. And like even European nations that have turned towards far right movements still have universal access to health care and really, you know, good educational systems yeah. and investment in the social safety net so that there, you know, yes, there are housing crises, but nothing on the scale of ours. Um, and I think that we forget that our baseline standard normal is actually really regressive. And so when we try to go regressive, we are going like middle ages. Yeah. Terrifyingly, perhaps biblical level uh, regressive. I, I always say this, you know, it's the, the, where does, where is the right, you know, where is the right? And in America, the right is very much to the far right, but the right, say in the UK, for example, is you would consider it moderate, I suppose, mm-hmm. because nobody wants to get rid of universal free health care. Nobody wants to get rid of the welfare state, you know, the support for people who can't work. It's, it's, it's very interesting how your uh, parameters for normality are different depending on the, the country you have been born into. And this is why I encourage everybody to emigrate just for a little bit, you know, just to get a yeah. sense of how it happens elsewhere. And and I want to talk about this rise of the, the right that is happening across other nations as well. We just saw in Argentina 
a guy who is a lunatic. I mean, he's brandishing a chainsaw. That was, that's his kind of, you know, that, that was, that was his brand, the yeah. chainsaw. Um, you know, getting, getting elected in Argentina. We've got to take another quick pause for our sponsor, but we'll come back and take a look at these characters next here on the weekend show. Cold turkey may be great on sandwiches, but there's a better way to break your bad habits. We're not talking about some mind voodoo from your crazy neighbor or something you have to learn from a big, thick book. We're talking about our sponsor, Fume, and they look at the problem in a different way. Not everything in a bad habit is wrong. So instead of a drastic, uncomfortable change, why not just remove the bad from your habit? Fume is an innovative, award-winning, flavoured air device that does just that. Instead of vapour, Fume uses flavoured air. Instead of electronics, Fume is completely natural. And instead of harmful chemicals, Fume uses delicious flavours. You get it. Instead of bad, Fume is good. It's a habit you're free to enjoy and makes replacing your bad habit easy. Your Fume comes with an adjustable airflow dial and is designed with movable parts and magnets for fidgeting, giving your fingers a lot to do, which is helpful for de-stressing and anxiety while breaking your habit. I gave one to my sister, she needed it, and it completely changed her habits too. You've got to try the new Solano Fume. It's made with a premium walnut barrel and an onyx-coated mouthpiece that has slightly softer finish. Start the holidays off right with a good habit by going to tryfume.com slash weekend and getting the journey pack today. Fume is giving listeners to this show 20% off until December 1st if you use the code weekend to help make starting the good habit that much easier. Start the good habit at tryfume.com slash weekend to save an additional 20% off the journey pack today until December 1st and 10% off all year round. Did you know that your temperature at night can have one of the greatest impacts on your sleep quality? If you wake up too hot or too cold, I highly recommend you check out Miracle Maid's bedsheets. Inspired by NASA, Miracle Made uses silver-infused fabrics and makes temperature-regulating bedding so you can sleep at the perfect temperature all night long. Using silver-infused fabrics originally inspired by NASA, Miracle Made sheets are thermoregulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long, so you get a better sleep every night. These sheets are infused with silver that prevent up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them to stay cleaner and fresher three times longer than other sheets. No more gross odors. Miracle sheets are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands and feel as nice, if not nicer, than bed sheets used by some five-star hotels. Stop sleeping on bacteria. Bacteria can clog your pores, causing outbreaks and acne. Sleep clean with Miracle. Go to trymiracle.com slash weekend to try Miracle Made Sheets today. And whether you're buying them for yourself or as a gift for a loved one, if you order today, you can save over 40%. And if you use our promo code weekend at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash weekend and use the code weekend to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. That's trymiracle.com slash weekend to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode.
We're back with Emily Galvin Almanza here on The Weekend Show. Uh, across the globe, the far right appears to be on the ascent. It has seized commanding heights in Giorgio Maloney's Italy, Viktor Orban's Hungary, whilst formerly ostracised ethno-nationalist parties like the Sweden Democrats and the True Finns are now in governing coalitions. Argentina has just elected a president, this character Javier Millet, who promises to to commodify all facets of social life um, and accompanying that with rabid anti-feminism and culture war invectives. He says, in my government, there will be no cultural Marxism. We're hearing the same from Donald Trump. You know, he is now invoking the language of Adolf Hitler. And, and, and you know, we've been looking at how the speeches are the same, referring to, to vermin and using identical language. You know, despite everything you and I have just been discussing about what is normal, there is a gravitation towards these populist extremist characters who, who pretend to be, you know, there for the people, but actually have no interest in that. They either want to burn it all down or just cause chaos. Well, you know, if, if this is a, if this is a pandemic of authoritarianism, it's not looking good for the U.S. next year. You know, two things. First is that I think that your use of the word pandemic is really relevant here. Um, because authoritarians rise through fear. Um, one of the things I see in my sector, which is really interesting, is that people's idea of whether crime is rising or falling, which, by the way, is just a proxy for whether they feel safe at home. It follows very consistently with whether their preferred political party is in or out of power. So when people's party is out of power, they think crime is rising, whether or not it actually is rising. Why do we link our idea of power to crime so thoroughly? Well, because people generally are asking when they go to the voting booth or when they decide who to support some version of, am I safe? Will this person fix our economy? Am I safe? What about our healthcare system? Will I be able to get a healthcare if this person's elected? Am I safe? Will I be able to keep my job? Am I safe? Um, there is no aspect of our government's role in our community that doesn't have something to do with whether we feel like we're okay. So when people feel really, really, really not okay, not safe, I think that there is a danger and a tendency to turn towards people who either express wanting to tear everything down, perhaps with a chainsaw, or people who are ex expressing extremist ideas of what the right answer is. And I think there's, there is a danger of that in our country. And I, I don't just mean from folks who are already conservative because they have fears about immigration or because they have fears about our economy or because they have fears about, I've always been really amused by the fact that like apocalypse preppers are not climate change people. I really feel like, like the, <laughs> we should get together on this, but setting that aside, um, I also feel like from progressives who feel like they're living in a country where this government has not been able to keep them safe because of the action of their states. I think that's really dangerous too, because you can reach a sense of helplessness or a sense of just frustration with the status quo that can drive people into extreme 
acts, views, and also divestment from government and from politics. So I think all of those are dangers. And yes, the pandemic, the actual pandemic, has contributed a lot to those feelings by confining people, changing the framework of our daily life, and creating new risks in our society. I actually think the word populist is the wrong word, and the media uses it a lot. I, I see populist as maybe somebody who is more generous and kind of very much in the present, but I don't see Donald Trump as a populist. I see him as an authoritarian, and I think the choice now is between democracy and dictatorship. I mean, let's not forget that speech that he made. I can't remember if it was his inauguration speech or if it was before, but he said, the American dream is dead. I alone can fix it. That, that, that is what they're doing here, isn't it? They are, they, are, they are breaking stuff. I mean, he broke democracy by denying that the election, you know, by saying the election was rigged. And now he's saying, if you vote me back, I will bring democracy back to America. Yeah, but, you know, it's also, um, it's relying on this idea that the American dream is dead. What is the American dream? It's hope. It's your aspiration. It's the idea that anyone can succeed. It's the idea that you can have a house and be, the ability to put food on the table for your family if you just work hard enough. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of people he's speaking to that do feel like that dream is dead, but because of lack of education, haven't linked that through to the very policies he's espousing. So people who are living in a small town in rural America and don't have any more doctors because all the doctors left town because of the possible criminalization of aspects of their practice or have, you know, a, teachers quitting their school system because the teachers are scared of book bans and scared of saying the wrong thing in the classroom and being persecuted. Or, you know, I remember I was talking to um, uh, a guy who's running for the Senate in um, West Virginia, and he was telling me an anecdote um, about how he'd been delivering water to a region of West Virginia that didn't have clean water. And he was talking to a Trump voter about that guy's vote. I mean, obviously, this is a Democrat who's running for Senate. And he really, um, this was actually before Joe Manchin had decided not to run. So he thought it was going to be a, a, a much different race than it may turn out to be. But he was talking to this guy about why he voted for Trump. And this guy was listing all the things that Trump was going to do for him. And this, he, the candidate said, all right, man, like I hear you on all those things, but all I see around here are Democrats bringing you clean water. Yeah. And, and water, I mean, the fact that we even have to talk about the lack of clean water in, in the U.S., whether it be Flint, Michigan, or anywhere else, you know, Biden is trying to remove lead pipes and replace them with, with new pipes. Contamination, I mean, I even checked my water supply here. It has 800 times the amount of arsenic that is legally acceptable. And I'm like, this, you know, <laughs> these are the norms that we've gotten used to. And so, again, this, it, it, it's this third world thing. It, it's like, in, it's constantly, for me anyway, as a European, it's like we have allowed third world action or third, third world experience to be normalized. And then it is these extremist characters that come along and they're like, well, you know, I'll solve all your problems. And is it because there are so many problems that people don't have the time or the energy 
to kind of deal with all these things. So they're like, if one guy shows up with an orange face and is like, I'm going to sort all this out for you, you leave it to me, you get on, you carry on watching Netflix, chilling out. You know, it's not a problem. I've got this. That some people are like, yeah, okay, you you deal with it. That's how confidence men have always operated. Is right. Yeah. Like, I have a really serious problem. The problem I have is really scary. All of these experts have told me that my problem is complicated and that it's going to take many different steps that are complicated and difficult and have to work together in order to fix my problem. On the other hand, I got this guy here who's like got weird hair, but they all have yeah. weird. Why do they all have weird hair? But the guy saying, "I've got this. Don't even worry. It's simple." Yeah. You know, they don't understand. I understand, which is how you get people buying into really unhinged solutions to complex problems because they are told that it is simple. And when they're asking, am I safe? Simplicity gives a quick yes answer, even if that answer is an illusion. And th there's no room for nuance in a lot of this stuff, is there? Because, you know, so much of what you and I are discussing requires an understanding of nuance whether it be the, the, the black man with his hands on the, on the hood or the black man in uniform that is arresting him, we, we, we are required to make the effort to be open to nuance mm -hmm. and have a nuanced conversation. And yet so much of what I hear from Republicans, MAGA Republicans and the like is just black and white, it's that side or that side. And, you know, the thinking that if you shut the border, then suddenly there'll magically be more jobs. I mean, none of it makes sense. And yet people don't have the time for the nuanced conversations. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, again, this comes down to education. Yeah. Tolerance for complexity, as you point out, for nuance. I think there's also a certain level of comfort with ambiguity. Mm -hmm. Like, I, one of the things that I... One of the things that I like about myself, <laughs> but really, honestly, is that in law school, uh, you're often called upon in a way that's quite alarming to know the answer to things, right? Like you get cold called. They are like, Miss, Miss Galvin Almanza, what is the answer? What is the hand theorem? And um, something that I embraced early in life that I'm really grateful for is the ability to say, I don't know. Let me let me learn more. Not actually great in a law school class, but great in a human life, yeah. which is comfort with not knowing, comfort with... I will give this to you in another context. North Americans, particularly in the United States, seem really comfortable instantly applying the politics of other nations to our own frameworks and saying, well, I, you know, I read about this for two minutes, so I know everything about the South American situation that's going on and like opining on it heavily. And I think that if we had more comfort with ambiguity and more humility in our own need to listen to listen to people who are directly experiencing harm, to listen to people who have spent years working on that harm, that kind of humility and comfort with not knowing would serve us really well. It leads us away from authoritarian solutions because instantly, once you adopt a framework of humility and comfort with ambiguity, the guy who is sure he knows everything seems really not plausible. A perfect example of this is the news that broke the other day about an incident involving a vehicle at the U.S.-Canada Rainbow Bridge border crossing. Uh, Fox News initiated coverage, framing it as a truck-related incident with mention of explosion. But then suddenly the reporter claimed a high-level police source described the explosion as a terrorist attack, stating the vehicle contained a lot of explosives. Then they escalated their coverage, devoting all the attention to the incident, largely based on this single source 
and then baselessly began employing the term Islamic terrorism, describing hypothetical scenarios regarding potential casualties if the vehicle had advanced. You then had people like Carrie Lake and you know Republican lawmakers, even Vivek Ramaswamy, your favorite, then all turned to social media. And he used the incident to promote his candidacy, saying how he's been sounding the alarm about the northern border, which he labeled a mounting crisis. I mean, this is nuts. The reality was it was just two people out going to a concert. And, you know, the at, at high speed, the car kind of took off and hit the toll and everything, you know, there was an explosion, but not because of an incendiary device. People were terrified. I mean, they thought this was, an, a, you know, a, another kind of incident. In, in American history, and it was an accident. Let's just talk about the responsibility of the media and leaders in, in times like this. I mean, it, I'm sure it didn't surprise you as it didn't surprise me that a lot of these Republican characters were very keen to use this as, as collateral in, the, in this divided conversation. Well, if people's attraction to you and willingness to support you is contingent upon them operating in an ongoing state of fear, then it is very useful to keep those yeah. people in an ongoing state of fear. Logic be damned, because honestly, if people wanted to breach the Canadian border, like the Niagara Bridge is like, <laughs> yes, I've been there. That river scares me. <laughs> it's right. huge. But no, I mean, I think that, first of all, Americans have a, a real credulousness when it comes to any kind of negative incident that takes place near or around police. So the yeah. fact that the car hit a Border Patrol station, um, I think, made them more willing to believe this insane narrative. But I, I believe there was a time in the news where you couldn't go public with a single anonymous source right. on something that incendiary. And it really is incendiary. Let's not forget that the, one of the first things that happened um, after the beginning of the conflict in, in the Middle East is that a Palestinian child was killed by his family's landlord right here in America. And when we talked earlier about what leadership blesses in terms of violence from the populace. And by putting out on Fox News, even for a moment, the idea that there was an Islamic terror incident at our Canadian border. They put lives at risk. They, even if, like I said, they believed their single anonymous source, there should have been a moment of saying, wait, there is so much violence against Muslim people in this country. We need to take a responsible pause and get a second source on this story before we put their lives at risk and possibly inspire violence against them. And what troubles me the most is there's no world in which you can claim not to know that there is a problem with violence against Muslim people in this country. You can't claim to not know that. So I'm going to assume that they know that. Knowing that to move forward for ratings, for power, for campaign donations, send me $3 now. If that is worth more than a risk to a child's life, I don't know where we are with our ethics in this country. I often come back to this thought that the value of life in the U.S. seems to be much lower than in, in, in many other countries, especially 
Western civilized countries, if you can call the US civilized, considering that there are school shootings that no one wants to really do anything about, or 400 million uh, AR-15s in circulation. I mean, it doesn't sound very civilized to me, or indeed where you can't get health care. I mean, come on. Yeah. But, you know, this notion of civility, it, it's almost especially in these polarizing political times a year out from a from a general election it's like anything is fair game anyone is fair game and you know i personally don't even like the criticism of ron desantis you know his physicality and his weird face and you know i i actually see him as i don't know maybe as an autistic man or somebody that is not you know by definition normal to other people's standards and yet and I, you know, and I, I'm not batting for that team, but I'm just saying it is inhumane to criticize someone's physicality so relentlessly. And, and yet it's very much normal here and people don't really think about it. They just go for it. We place a really low value. First of all, I take cowboy boots really personally. I'm just yeah. like, I'm just like you, I told you I was a rodeo kid. I'm, so I'm, I'm allowed to criticize boots. Ron DeSantis's weird cowboy boots. That's yeah. Okay. Stake in the ground. Um, but I agree with you on the rest. And I think that you don't need to look farther than our prison system. We send people to prison for life for almost nothing. Yeah, yeah we're undoing some of that damage. But until a very few years ago, we had people serving life in prison in bright blue California for stealing a piece of pizza or a pair of socks. Um even if you take life sentences and death sentences out of the equation, our average sentence length for any misconduct is way longer than any, any other country we would consider to be a peer because we don't value years of a human life. And we treat people in ways. I remember when Brittany Griner was in a Russian prison and people were getting loud correctly about the conditions of her confinement. And all of the conditions of confinement they were listing as this horrifying, inhumane, like Russian gulag, like, hello, you are describing your average American jail or prison. We throw people's lives away so easily. We do not believe that children are worthy of education, which is why we don't have universal pre-K or support for young parents and single parents who are trying to get by. Um, we don't value people's nutrition, well-being, or health, which is why we allow ingredients into our foods and products that other countries have banned. Um, we don't keep up our public infrastructure, which is why, yes, we have poisonous water in places, not because we have to, but because we haven't bothered to fix it. Um, in almost every way in which a country could devalue human life and expect people to live under conditions that other countries would consider unacceptable, we embrace our frontier disregard for the sanctity of life. And I don't know how we fix that other than finding some way to more deeply connect with one another as humans and come back to a culture in which we can embrace each other with care even when we disagree. There is a way to go, some way to fixing it, and, and that is to vote. Like your and life serve depends on juries, but yes. On yeah, right, indeed. But I mean, it's important that we have to finish. But I, I'm, you know, this, mm -hmm. this, all these conversations are, are, are pretty kind of doomsday. But there is an alternative, which is 
vote, like choose. Mm-hmm. And, and because as far as I see it, all of the things that you just described, the Democrats are advocating for change. Doesn't happen overnight, but they'll get to it. And, and there is a chance that if there were three branches of, of, of Democrat government, multiple, you know, multiple years, then actually the U.S. could turn around pretty quickly. It might even meet its climate change targets. If everybody who could vote voted, we could build a dramatically better world, especially because if everybody who could vote actually voted, it would influence who's actually running for office and who's up for these positions. And, you know, massive turnout, especially among young people, changes not only the outcome of individual elections, but the makeup of subsequent elections. So there's this trickle down power building effect that comes with not just the act of voting itself, but the stats about who voted, how reliably they vote, what elections they vote in. Um, So when it comes to power building, unfortunately, it doesn't feel as powerful as it is. And it's a collective action which requires everybody to take part. So the individual act feels small. And it's hard to have the patience or scope to take in the magnitude of a collective action that says, yes, voters under 30 are now the single most popular, you know, powerful demographic, and we need to give them what they're asking for. Um, But I hope that people realize that there is a path to power. It does exist. It is going to be hard to do. There's going to be weird registration hurdles. There's going to be long lines because, again, in a country with voter suppression, they make it real hard to vote. Um, there's going to be fussing about absentee ballots. There's going to be all the things. And it's going to require everybody's efforts to not just bring ourselves to the polls, but bring our neighbors and our friends. Um, and to push back against our friends who say, like, F it, they're all the same, because they are not. Um, I have hope that we can do it. It's not a guarantee. Okay. Emily Galvin Almanza, thank you for joining us on The Weekend Show. Thanks for having me. Do subscribe to my new show. It's called Uncovered with Ron Filipkowski. We do it live every Wednesday on the Midas Touch Network. And don't forget to support me and independent journalism at patreon.com slash five minute news. You can download my daily podcast called Five Minute News every morning and join us next week with a brand new special guest and more factual news stories to discuss on the Five Minute News weekend show with Midas Touch. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.